0: So I know you'd been reading more about Polanyi, but I haven't fully read his book, Personal Knowledge, as much. I was curious to hear what you'd been thinking about around him.
1: So Polanyi has this idea called indwelling. He's saying indwelling is an active process that we all partake in as people, as knowers. When we integrate the clues in the world to determine certain ideas about reality, it's related to a lot of embodied terms like filling ourselves up. These are all like bodily ideas about knowledge, right? And I think that is an aspect of perception and awareness. There's a sense that we are blind because like we can see things with our eyes, but if our minds don't see the pattern that's there, it won't show up. And so he was saying the body is actually something we always in dwell meaning we always are relying on our body. We can't focus on our body because we live through our body. We are like we said embodied beings.
0: Yeah. Did we talk last time about directionality in cultures and intuitively knowing what direction you're facing? Um Yeah,
1: I think you mentioned like the whole behind and forward in terms of time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then there's also one where depending on the language you speak it will affect your ability to perceive directions. In Papua New Guinea, there's a couple of the places too. If you say good morning to someone, you say it in a way that's like, good morning, I'm walking northeast. Uh, And they might say, good morning, I'm walking southwest. So in every single interaction and exchange you have, you are stating your positionality in the world. And it makes it so that children of these cultures, if you ask them what direction southwest is, they can point and it's dead on, it's correct. They just know because the technology of their language has You know, giving them this bodily understanding of directionality in a way that we don't have, right? If someone asks us where Northwest is and we're inside a house, most of us who speak English would just have no clue.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not something people ask, so you wouldn't even have an answer. Yeah. Just like Google it or something, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I love this idea of indwelling of, of like ambient technology that takes more advantage or is more entwined with our bodily experience in the world. I know that Google's doing work on trying to put wearables into clothing, but Mm -hmm. we use very little haptic feedback in our current technical systems. I always think of fitness trackers especially, so vibrating certain parts of the body to give information. It doesn't take a lot of cognitive ability to clock something like that. And we rely so much on visuals right now. So if you get a notification, right, it's some pop-up in your sidebar or it's on your phone and it has to make a noise and it interrupts your cognitive flow in a more explicit way, And I I don't understand why or what the barriers are to us having something like, you know, if I got a certain message that my right shoulder would vibrate and if I got a different kind of message, you know, like something (laughs) like my left leg would vibrate because to get back to the directionality one a bit, I had heard from one of my other friends, a story of someone who had built themselves a belt that would always vibrate in the direction of North when they were facing it. And think of how quickly you would learn which direction north was if just there was this very tacit, you know, Uh nudge that gives you like, oh, okay, there's north. And even if you were in a house, you would suddenly learn to understand the direction so quick fast. Mm.
1: Wow. I guess it really is just the assumptions that we have about how things work.
0: I mean, it gets us back to the technology as tools with like the affordances baked in that because we've mm-hmm. all been handed the web and our digital mediums from this historical legacy of being visual first and text first, that we don't have the design patterns for embodiment or, or using light or sound in different ways with them. Uh, even if we now have more of the material infrastructure to be able to do that, or kind of, I mean, most of us can't actually hack together a Raspberry Pi system that has like cool led lights that communicate things to us or haptic feedback stuff right we can build an app in react but you know we can't build things into our house that are more just like inventive technology processes or it takes a lot of work to or at least i've tried googling it and it's harder than i can figure out
1: (laughs) it might be just we kind of reflect the kind of programming that we do when we're writing code we're using like lists and maps basically we see all these lists so we just assume it's going to be like a feed or in zoom it's a box we don't know how to think spatially so it's just not what we turn to
0: yeah that's funny i had done a talk recently Uh, do you know the paperclip machine thought experiment from ai
1: i don't know if it's the same
0: It's from Nicholas Bostrom um, and Superintelligence, which I haven't fully read, of course. <laughs> he first proposed this thought experiment that we build an AI, and we don't correctly have it understand the value of human life, and mm-hmm. we tell it to make paperclips. So it starts making paperclips, and then it realizes that if it um, kills all the humans, it would get much more efficient at making paperclips. and they get in the way, and we take up resources. So then it kills all the humans, and it just makes paperclips forever, and like that's the parable of how- why AI is dangerous. And I was being a bit maybe coy with it, but um, relating it to sometimes in the React world, it feels like we have this runaway to-do app machine where every single app that gets made is a to-do app. People see that everyone else is building to-do apps. Every tutorial teaches you to build a to-do app. And to-do apps, right? They do the create, read, update, delete, which like these essential Mm -hmm. functions. So it is a great example. But what happens when everyone in the community is looking inwards at themselves or when I say themselves at other members of the community and what they're building and they build what they see because it's just this self-reinforcing loop?
1: Yeah, I guess we'd like to think we can be more creative, but that's just what you turn to. It's the same with a hacker news clone. It
0: requires a balance, right? Because we can't chuck out all previous norms because our users won't know what they're looking at or what to do with it. i I imagine this is where the dynamic land stuff would relate a lot like whatever they're doing there sounds really cool of course it's all very mysterious and we're not quite sure what they're doing (laughs) but it seems like we can't even fathom what they're making because it seems like it's going to be so different from what we're used to using
1: actually that's a good point I, i think that might be a reason why it's hard to like fund that or because they're going for something so out there thinking years ahead then Mm -hmm. practically speaking, it is research and it might not be as practical. Maybe there are people that are inspired by things that they do and they try to make it very practical. But then in a way, they're just kind of doing the same thing as before with a different like skin, like -hmm. the same list idea. And I think maybe some people might even think we need to start over. I tend to not want to do that in general because of the idea of tradition. There's all these things that were encoded and what we do that have benefits. Yeah, that's just the whole tension between like revolution and incremental change and how do we Mm -hmm. handle both of these things.
0: Right, yeah. The answer is rarely burn it all down. You know, that's (laughs) rarely the right move.
1: (laughs) Right. We don't understand the second order effects of whatever is happening, right?
0: Yeah. And it always just bounces back. There's always a reaction to any extreme action
1: some more on balani in knowing itself if there's nowhere at all which is us it means that knowledge has to be inherently subjective right and that would imply that there's no such thing as a purely objective knowing and that doesn't say that there isn't objective knowledge it just means that when we pursue science it's through subjective means which Mm -hmm. is personal Because I think it's too easy to be like, well, everything is just whatever you make it of it. There's no actual reality. He's trying to combine these two ideas. There shouldn't be a distinction between the subjective and the objective. And this indwelling makes those things make sense. It's a process of integration between these two. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was reading a bit of Polanyi's, the very beginning of his book where he was going into this subjective knowledge thing. And it was so strange to read it because what field did he come from? I confused him with his brother for a minute, but he was in science.
1: (laughs) He was a physical chemist. He was super into like the actual practice of science until he decided to essentially switch.
0: Because I found him fascinating that he had come from this more hard science background. And everything he was writing, to me, read just like a, a postmodern anthropological tape. Mm-hmm. So in anthropology, <laughs> there was this big postmodern movement. And it just was reading word for word, like another thinker uh, called Bruno Latour, who's a French philosopher uh, well, and anthropologist, who um, went in and studied scientists in their labs and then did an anthropological study of scientists as a culture which the scientists some of them found quite offensive which is b- quite funny <laughs> as if they're saying you know oh well we don't have culture you know we're just doing science and labs and and bruno just was quite innovative doing this throughout the 70s and 80s saying no no you know you have culture just like everyone else anthropologists don't just study people on islands and claim they're the only ones with culture you know <laughs> It's like everyone has cultural beliefs and biases and and blind spots, and pointing that out was quite an innovative thing. But him with Polanyi was so strange because Bruno Latour has this theory about what he calls hybrid objects, which says, you know, how do we explain that everything is cultural and subjective and yet also hold that the physical world has what he calls like a, a robustness um, to it that you can't deny. like I can't deny that this table is solid and I can't put hmm. my hand through it. I don't have the subjective opinion that i'm able to put my hand through the table <laughs> or that how do we understand that everything is a hybrid of both social cultural beliefs and physical reality he uses the uh, example of quarks that if we didn't have any conception of what a quark was that's a cultural concept we've given it a name and we've studied it in like a very cultural space where we said, okay, this is how we're going to study that quarks exist. And we're going to use all these special instruments to study them. And then we're going to tell ourselves stories about what quarks are and who they're important to and why they're important. Those are all social cultural layers to it. But at the core of it, if we hadn't told any of those things, there would still be quarks in the universe. So like, how do we blend those? But I liked his idea of that there's like this layer around them. So you have the physical thing and there's this social cultural layer around the outside. And we can't see the quark without looking through that layer, right? We built the layer and we're inside of it. And there is no way for us to step outside of it into this objective, idealist, modernist viewpoint and be like, no, no, I know what quarks really are because the numbers on my graph that I have also invented, (laughs) you know, say this quark exists. It fails to recognize that the graph itself and your measurement devices are cultural artifacts.
1: That makes sense. This makes me think about Aaron's post metaphors we believe by mm-hmm. and how the god that we kill might just be a certain conception of it. That doesn't mean it's not there or that we create our own machines and they turn into our idols.
0: So yeah, you is quite impressive. I, I agree with you, this thing of of coming to people slowly and sort of like edging around them and taking in their work in bits and pieces as you need it actually it's quite a nice embodied metaphor you
1: know <laughs> it makes sense that you could do that with him or anyone that's kind of the mm-hmm. whole point
0: point. and I do like that approach too because it's different to what I would maybe think of as the popular understanding of how you're quote-unquote supposed to uh-huh. study or consume someone's consume even now oh, that word but yeah. read someone's work <laughs> currently right you're supposed to like sit down in like super focused mode and take really great notes into your digital Zettel system and take out all the highlights and automate the process and tweet about it. It's a very specific way of interacting with knowledge as opposed to coming to it in bits and pieces and revisiting it in small chunks over time and not turning it into some sort of, you know, information filtering system.
1: (laughs) We've said this before, but that is the whole reductionist view of information, that you can just download it. I think that's why he kept going back to these metaphors about faith. He was trying to compare it to worship, which you could say is just simply singing, but it, it could be the fulfillment of what knowledge really means. It's like to truly understand somebody or something and to give it the honor that it deserves. Um, mm. If we want to know somebody, you, you're not going to do all your research on someone before you get to know them. It's good to have some kind of context, but wouldn't you rather just actually talk to them? And you could say the same thing about God. It's like I can read a bunch of stuff about Him or what other people said about Him. I think communion is a good word to describe what a relationship is supposed to be like. What is prayer really about? Not you know thoughts and prayers, but like actually communication and communication is a relationship and I think that's why in this sense faith is a relationship and I think that represents a good way of thinking about how we might want to relate to knowledge too even though it's not a real person we personify it and that's why it's personal right any topic that you care a lot about you're obviously going to put your whole body mind and soul into this thing
0: yeah yeah I like that so much, that idea of, yeah, putting like the embodied action investment into when you care about something to try and be part of it. I'm now thinking about, you know, when someone gets really into a theory or an author, and they want to go do something like a pilgrimage to where that person maybe used to live.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> or they,
0: um, You know, or, or they'll buy a really nice copy of the hardback edition of one of their books, right? And what they're seeking is some sort of meaningful embodied experience with what so far has just been a more of a detached Mm. mental experience maybe just text on a page i was thinking of this because all around london we're sort of getting allowed to to go um around a bit more again with lockdown lifting and i always love all around london there are these blue plaques on houses that say whether famous people used to live in the house or not so there's hundreds of them but you can Mm. be walking around london and be like oh like frederick engels used to live in this house or like led zeppelin or whatever visited here in this year or here's the old beatles recording studio so you can kind of go to these locations and see it and you go what's the point of having these but it gives you so much more of this like oh for some reason this feels now like i'm more embodied Mm -hmm. with my relationship with this person that was before just an intellectual one and now i'm standing where they've stood it does have meaning to us
1: yeah because otherwise in the end what makes a single place distinctive from any other i i like the word particularity right there's something that's concrete it's not abstract because we were talking about how knowledge is subjective but leading towards something objective the question might you might be asking is how do you know something is true then and he's saying that you can't ever know for certain what the truth is, meaning that we are all fallible, right? You can't be 100% certain. He could say that's very postmodernist. He's trying to say that the way we showcase that to ourselves and other people is through commitment, meaning that you will stake something on the things that you believe. The same idea of skin in the game, right? So it is not an intellectual thing, right? And we could say in faith, you know, we devote our life to this thing, right?
0: Interesting. So is it the theory of skin in the game and, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, no, I believe this thing. So I'm going to put material time and effort into it. Is there something, if lots and lots of people believe something's true, that that's where they start to build physical artifacts to, to demonstrate commitment to it? Would that add up?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think I might emphasize more of the practices. So like liturgy, ritual, right? Not just you, actually, it becomes a part of the community. That would be like a church setting or science as a general community, right? Those artifacts become the liturgies. And liturgies are, in a way, practices that are embodied through people doing them. Because if no one does them anymore, if people wrote down how to pray or worship and you have the instruments for it and the setting, like the cathedral, but no one actually does it, then you probably won't be able to pass that down anymore.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, that is very like a live belief and knowledge to have, you know, thousands of people engaging in a certain practice. Is there any greater signal of it, you know, of something being true for lots and lots of people than actively there being enormous numbers of people living out uh, long traditions of ritual and uh, practice?
1: And I think that's why modern American worship, a lot more almost like pop culture-ish. And other people are like, no, we need to be more traditional, like hymns. And I understand the appeal of that because, like, the whole I've stood where other people stood, Well, I'm saying the same things that other people have been saying for the last thousands of years, there's something special about that, and we shouldn't get rid of it just because we thought it sounds weird.
0: Right. Because we probably perceive there's a little bit of arrogance, right, when people say they're going to throw out history. It's to say, I don't think that anything that has come before... You give up the idea that it could have something you don't understand, singing a hymn that has been sung for thousands of years, and you think, oh, well, you know, it has no meaning to me. Let's just not do it anymore. You're not making space for what maybe it can like teach you that you aren't consciously aware of.
1: Yeah, because it means that the focus is on the content again, because the medium is different, right? Hymns in itself is a different medium than just a normal song. And actually, Skin in the Game... Specifically in Christianity, is really interesting. And I, I didn't really put the two together. The story of Christianity itself is God becoming a person, right? That is a, its own skin in the game of like, assuming you believe in any of this and that it's a positive thing, God becoming a person and representing us is saying, I care about you. I will actually become incarnate, like an actual embodied being. And then also the whole death and resurrection part too. That to me is a reminder that Christianity should be very anti-modern and it should embrace this idea of embodiment more and this pursuit of absolute knowledge. It's funny because that isn't the whole point of our faith, faith. It's not as black and white. And so you can still believe that God is in control, but we aren't the ones in control and we aren't the ones that never have doubt.
0: Mm. I like that. I hadn't thought of that before, that embodiment clearly being so symbolically critical and then God coming into human form in the resurrection. Clearly, yeah, the signal that embodiment is important. In my head, I'm just finding it an interesting contrast to what I would maybe think of as, as I want to call it like the digital religion, but, you know, mm-hmm. the transhumanist ideal that is a little bit religious in many ways. It's ideal is to escape embodiment, right? Like all the rhetoric around, well, not just living in the cloud, but not caring as much about your body or it being a, a burden or weight. You have to like upkeep it. It's, it's talked about as this inconvenient thing. Yeah, it doesn't allow you to just like fly through cyberspace, right? Like this is like the VR dream of everyone wanting to just, put on headsets and not have to deal with like their physicality. That's funny. I hadn't ever thought of, of the contrast between those two. And I wonder if then transhumanism is some sort of reaction to maybe some of the more traditional religious beliefs.
1: Yeah. Actually, even in Revelation, you know, when Christ comes back, we talk about this idea of new heavens and new earth, and we will all have new bodies. And so whatever that means, there is a belief that we will still have a body. We're not just a spirit right? You, mm-hmm. Typically, you think that you go to heaven, you leave your body, we're all like little spirits floating around. But in this case, no, it's actually saying that that that's a vital part of the, the end, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that. And I think the end for transhumanism is, like you said, it's an escape of the body because we see the limitations of it and we want to get rid of that. And I think being a person in the context of faith here is understanding our limits. And I think idolatry is saying that we are God. And this is not something that is fun to hear. You know, like we want to become God, of course. And we want to be the one in control. And here, this is the idea of surrender. It's the idea of letting go. um, That I am not in control. And I'm going to have the faith that hopefully something positive will happen. And it's because I believe in someone that has those interests in mind, right? So the an essay called Stability of Beliefs, he was just talking about various beliefs of even indigenous cultures and how especially Western people think that what they do is just absurd or just weird. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. but And, and in some sense, it, maybe it doesn't, but those things work for them. Mm-hmm. And there's something about it that works, that is true. It, it sort of supports the idea of conspiracy theory in a way. Uh, and not being so judgmental over that. It's hard not to, obviously. I get extremely frustrated. And and I think Aaron tweeted about the president of TED. He made a video about how the people that believe Bill Gates is doing this, they're crazy. And I think people that listen to that, it only reinforces their belief that they are right. And so Polanyi is saying the same thing, where if you have a different way you see the world, it is literally a different language, a different world different concepts and meanings for the same words. And you have to understand from within that view, because on the outside, it's always going to look strange.
0: I definitely struggle with that as well, right? That if we take seriously postmodern subjective truth, then anyone else's decision of what is true for them in their cultural context, we have to take as valid, which is interesting if we tie it back to Bruno Latour's robustness Mm -hmm. thing where at some point there's a material reality to it. So, I mean, especially in the context of, right, maybe COVID and face masks, there's a point at which the infection rate, human bodies get the disease, you know, (laughs) that's like a very hard to deny reality of a situation. But there's such a disjuncture, right, in like our large scale media landscape between the actual infection numbers and maybe one person, individual's behavior in in a location and their cultural beliefs around whether it's real or not and whether, what was it, Bill Gates' vaccine is going to inject us all with mind-controlling mm-hmm. it. Yeah, like at some point, you know, there's like a robustness to some form of reality that having a strong connection to is probably important in whatever our understanding of truth is.
1: Yeah. It's so fascinating to me to read this. It validates my thinking. But I was like, oh, it validates all of us. It's just like learning to... Empathize with people just like other people are doing with me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the same boat of telling someone they're wrong is like the worst possible way to convince anyone of anything. Right. Uh, and yet, yeah, to, to be able to make space for like multiple truths and ways of seeing the world and not just shutting people down because theirs are different to yours. Yeah. I don't know if there's as much validity to just, you know, anyone saying like, okay, like this is, this is my truth and I get to believe it.
1: I guess it's just. We can say that abstractly, but when we find something that we think is just completely right or completely wrong, and like we said before, there's nothing we can be certain about. I say that, but yet we all believe in certain things that we think are just, that's just how it is.
0: Yeah. I am curious to dive into Polanyi more. I don't know if he's really going to have the answers to this sort of thing, (laughs) but I do have more faith in books that have been around for longer and you go like, okay, we know this is like a very modern thing we're struggling with, right? Like this post-truth world, quote unquote, how do you manage multiple truths or having to interact with each other in a close internet space? But yeah, hopefully going back to people like Polanyi are going to be more insightful and useful than whatever Medium post was written this week on it.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Open Source. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can join our Discord or find me on Twitter at left underscore pad. If you'd like to check out the transcript with links and references, please visit hopeandsource.com.